Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, and today we're pleased to be visiting with Dr. Matt Carter. Matt is the pastor of Preaching and Vision at the Austin Stone Community Church and is the author or co-author of a few books, including a commentary on the Gospel of John in the Christ-Centered Exposition series, and with Aaron Ivey, a recent work of historical fiction called Steal Away Home. But today we're talking about his brand new solo book, The Long Walk Home, Discovering the Fullness of Life in the Love of the Father. Matt, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, brother. Man, thanks for having me. It's a, it's an honor to be here. Yeah, things going well for you? Things going well at the church and, and all of that? So far, so good, man. We are uh, we still have a, a lot of college students that go to the stone, believe it or not, even though I'm getting old. <laughs> but uh, so the... the the beginning of the school year is always uh, really busy for us, and but man, yeah, good things are happening, and uh, I'm still still honored to to be a part of it, man. Yeah, has has the uh, football season started for your boys? Have um, yeah. So for those that may not know, it's a long boring story, so I won't bore them. But uh, my sons go to a private school here in town, and. Long story short, I got asked to volunteer to coach two years ago, and that led into a more than a volunteer position. So I've been coaching for about six years football, and yeah, man, we started uh, last night, as a matter of fact. Oh, nice. Got the win. Got the win against our arch rivals, Waco Live Oak. Man, man, I hate those Waco Live Oak guys. (laughs) No, I don't know anything about them, but but just the name sounds obnoxious, so. Uh, are they really from yeah, Waco? Yeah, we could talk for a long time about that, but I don't <laughs> think anybody cares. So. Okay, all right. Well, I, I want to ask you about something else. I mean, I want to talk to you about your book, um, but I want to ask you about something you said a while back to me about transitioning to youth pastor at your church, and I couldn't tell yeah. when you said it. it I, I thought you were joking, and then you said you weren't, uh, but I don't see any authoritative record online or anywhere else on the church website of you being anything but pastor of preaching and vision. So I, I guess I'm just asking if you're a liar is what I'm asking. Not a liar, but it's <laughs> kind of like one of those, it's kind of like being a football coach. It's one of those things that I'm doing, but I'm not getting paid for, you know, okay. and, and, uh, but man, so here's what happened. You know, I'm, I'm a, I, I, I transitioned out of the lead pastor role at the Austin Sun, I think in 2009 or 10, okay. actually. And, um, you know, I, Man, I, I can preach a little bit and, and lead a little bit, but um, I've always felt that, you know, one of the best ways to, to have a healthy church is to allow guys to lead and and, uh, and have power and fulfill their dreams and be able to run and, and fulfill their vision. And so, man, from the very beginning of the church, I've sort of tried to figure out where I lack in my leadership and things that I'm not good at, and then try to find good people in those areas and, and sort of let them run. And and um, and man, one of them was running the day to day operations of the church. You know, was speaking a little more outside the church and, and writing and focusing on preaching. And so um, I passed that baton and, and and been doing that for gosh nine years now. And and so. Um, in addition to preaching and, and doing some leading and vision like that, one of the things I do is I, I try to just come in and blow wind in the sails of different ministries in the church and and help wherever I can and lead wherever I can. And we're at a, you know, we're a multi-site church. We have five campuses, and 
And because we've traditionally been such a young church, um, our, our student ministry has always, and for just lack of better words, we haven't emphasized it as much as we should, you know, because we had so many college students. And, well, you know, as we're aging as a church and more folks are getting into their 40s and 50s and having teenagers, we began to focus on our high school and junior high ministry. And um, we began to look for kind of a lead youth pastor someone that could come in and oversee all of our student ministers and yeah. sort of, we did a nationwide search and didn't really find anybody that we liked. And I was, I was in the office with all the sort of central elder guys one day and was really kind of joking around. And they said, um, and I said, rather, I was like, what if I did it? <laughs> and everybody kind of laughed. And, and then Kevin Peck, our lead pastor, looked at me and says, oh, are you serious? And I was like, well, yeah, not really. I'm not, but you know, <laughs> now that I've said it, and the long story short, man, I, uh, for about the last year and a half, I sort of jumped in as, um, in that position. I'm still doing my other duties, but I've been working with our student pastors for about a year and a half and help lead them and get that ministry established. And, and so, no, I didn't change titles or anything, but, uh, and it's been a blast just kind of getting back into the, the, the trenches of just everyday teamwork and, and pastoring students has just been a lot of fun but that's that's what i've been doing yeah that's awesome that's really cool man um all right so let's talk about your book um there's a really different vibe to this one uh, i've got an advanced reader's copy uh but the internal font is a little more vibrant than um the average book uh, i was just showing it to one of my colleagues here um before we started recording the um you know just the format the design of the book the cover's kind of artsy the table of contents reads like a story outline, kind of. Uh, so I wonder if you just kind of, you know, tell us about the long walk home. What are um, what are some things you're trying to do with the book? Yeah, you know, man. I so one of the things that we did in our student ministry over the last couple of years is um, we developed a sermon series on the prodigal son, and um, it's, it's always been a story that I've loved and I've loved preaching it and and teaching it and studying it and. And I think probably the main reason I've loved it is because kind of that guy's story is my story. Mm. You know, my, my whole story is, of my life is, has been me trying to run away from God, and he just won't let me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I always have come to, come to my senses moment. But And so that was kind of the beginning of me thinking about this story in depth. And and I started, you know, there's, there's all the studies out there that talk about millennials and Gen Zs uh, leaving the church in droves and, so I started trying to get to the bottom of why that's happening, like what's going on, and, and, and there's a ton of reasons why that's happening, I think. But one of the main things that I'm hearing as a pastor of a church full of a lot of young people is I'm seeing younger Christians, folks that, that grow up in a, in a Christian home, and um, at some point in time in high school, college, for a lot of different reasons. I think it's social media. I think there's a lot of things going on, but they're sort of, they're looking at the world and they're looking at what they think the world has to offer. And they're asking themselves this question sooner and more often than maybe generations in the past. And it's like, man, if I, and the question is, if, is there a better life for me outside of Christianity? Is there a better life for me outside of God's love? If I go all in with Jesus, am I missing out on life's mm. death? 
And a lot of them are coming to the conclusion that, that, yeah, man, this Christianity thing, if I go all in, I'm actually not living this abundant life Christ talked about, but there is a better life for me outside of God's love, and, and they're leaving. Yeah. And that's just one of many reasons. But at the end of the day, that kind of is the, the story of the political front. And, and one of the things I did in the book is I sort of walked verse by verse through the story and, and wrote a chapter based on sort of each line of the story. But one of the questions I asked myself, Jared, is like, why did the guy leave in the first place? Yeah. You know, why did he come to his dad and say, hey, dad, um, you know, I kind of wish you were dead. Can I, you know, <laughs> can I have my inheritance early? <laughs> Excuse me. And, and takes off to this faraway land. And y'all know the story. He goes crazy. And, and, I, and I sort of came to the conclusion that even though Jesus wasn't explicit in that, he's probably, probably son was probably asking that same question. You know, he's doing his work there at the farm and hanging out with his family and his dad, but the whole time he's sort of looking at the city in the distance, mm. on the horizon, and wondering deep down inside, if, Man, is, is there a better life for me there? Yeah. And he, at some point he kind of has this internal resolve that, man, there's got to be. And at the very least, i got to go find out for myself. And so he takes off and does that. And, of course, everybody knows the story. He has this moment where he blows all the inheritance, and he comes to his senses, and he comes home. And and then there's the great picture in the Scripture of the Father that's not standing there waiting with his arms folded, saying, I told you so, but runs to him and, and welcomes him home. And so this, the book is really written for two groups of people. And uh, the first one is, is maybe that, that person that's asking those questions. I think it's a really good book for, for younger, younger people, high school students, college students, young adults that are maybe wrestling, man, if I go all in with Jesus, is, this, is there a better life for me if I don't? And helping them come to that conclusion and, and walk along with the prodigal son and see the decision he makes and sees the consequences and then see that actually, yeah, the fullness of life is found in one place if you're a believer, and that's in the love of the Father. And then the other uh, group of people that I wrote this book to are the folks that sort of have taken that trip to the faraway land of sin. You know, man, I, mm. Jared, something I'm hearing more and more and more and more. Um, as I'm getting older, I've been in ministry this year for 25 years. And um, <clears throat> the thing I'm hearing more often than I think I ever have in my ministry are younger folks that, that follow in the sin, whatever it is. And they actually get to the place where they're like, you know what, I actually have messed up too bad that I don't think God can can, can take me back. Mm-hmm. I don't think God can use me. There's there's no way that I can be in the ministry. There's no way I, that I can engage in the mission of God because I've done X, Y, or Z, and I've just gone too far. And, and, and as you know, the story of the prodigal son is a picture of this young man that sinned about as bad as you can sin. You know, I mean, I think Jesus is very explicit on what he says the young man does. He betrays his father in this profound way. Then he goes, and and, and if anybody's ever studied or preached on this, they know that he, he did some pretty heinous things in the faraway land. I think Jesus tells that part of the story to show this guy has fallen about as far as you can, and yet there's this picture of this radical grace, this radical gospel, this father that seems to have been searching the horizon for him the whole time and doesn't welcome him back as a servant, but welcomes him back as a son and even lavishes him with all these gifts of, of grace. And, 
And it's it's for that person that thinks they've fallen so far that, that God won't pick them back, and that's just simply not true. Yeah. That there is no sin greater than the, than the than the cross and the blood of Jesus and the love of their Father. Yeah. You know, I, I sometimes wonder if anything um, fresh can be shared about the parable of the prodigal son, especially after Keller's book, uh, you know, a few years ago. Uh, but last year, uh, we were hosting a conference here in Kansas City at our church called the Normal Pastor Conference, and a fellow by the name of Juan Kwok, who is a pastor in the New York City area, uh, was preaching on the prodigal son. And I'll, I'll be honest, just like cynically, I just thought, you know, is this the best text for this group? <laughs> and uh, I just felt so convicted um, as he preached and reminded afresh of how the word is living and active, and I will never master it. Even the most familiar parts of it, or the parts that seem the most familiar to me, the the scriptures are such a well of wisdom. And so I'm wondering, I'm wondering, what are some insights into this really familiar story that you think some Christians um, often miss? What are some things? I mean, we, you know, we think we know the story, or we know the narrative, really. Um, but what are some things you think? Christians sometimes miss in the story of the prodigal son? Well, one of the things that, that I've, <clears throat> I don't know that I've ever heard, and can I just make a confession that might make me lose my job? I, I, I have actually never read Tim Keller's book on that. I don't believe you. So <laughs> it's true. I <laughs> okay, do, I believe you. And I'm, I know, I know I'm going to hell, but I, I never have. Um, <laughs> and I should, but, uh, um, so I can promise you I didn't plagiarize it because I've never read it. Okay. Uh, but, you know, man, one of the things I've never seen really tackled is what I sort of talked about a second ago is, like, why did he leave? Mm. You know, what was this internal motivation that caused him to leave? And then sort of I dive into, um, in the story, what, as a, as a believer, you know, what, what motivates us to, to sin? What motivates us to, um, to sort of go to the far away? Far away land of sin, if you will. Yeah, and um, and so I talk about that a lot, and and and, uh, and and I get into maybe there's one insight that I think um, I think might be helpful for folks is I get into the Ecclesiastes three eleven stuff that God placed eternity yep. in the hearts of men, and so so here's this God that creates us, and He <clears throat> places in every human being an eternal hunger. It's a hunger for the eternal. And if God placed this eternity, which this longing for the eternal in us, then the logical conclusion is that there's only one thing that can satisfy that, which is the eternal God of the universe. And, and, and so many of us spend our entire lives trying to satiate that, that hunger, that eternal hunger with the things of, of the world. And, and so I sort of talk about what motivates us to try to find life outside of God? Why do we do that? Um, I, I talk about the folly of sin in this book, which, which why for the, for the child of God, for the believer, that sin is a monumental waste of time. Like, I talk about why does he come to his senses? I, really, I, I don't think I've seen that talked about. What was the cause? Yeah, he messed up. He, he realized he was poor, but there's something else going on. And what I've, I talk about is for the, for the believer, for the person that's indwelled with the Holy Spirit, sin is always a dead end road. And here's why. Because, because you have the Holy Spirit, you can't enjoy sin anymore. Mm-hmm. You, you, you may enjoy it for a second, but it'll never work. It, there'll always be a moment where the Holy Spirit starts speaking and prodding and calling you home. And so 
And so, one, you can't even enjoy sin anymore, but two, because you're sinning, you can't fully enjoy the presence of the Lord and the Holy Spirit and the fullness of life. And so the, the Christian that's in sin, that's walking in unrepentant sin, is arguably maybe the most miserable person on the planet. And so I, I go into a lot about the folly of, of sin and sort of the stupidity of sin for the child of God. Um, and so then I think that's probably a couple things. I just tried to try to uh, look at it from some different angles and sort of get into the internal motivations behind the scenes, if you will. And I think that's maybe what's fresh about it. Yeah, you know, what strikes me is how um, that compelling vision of, of sort of what else is out there or what might complete me or a sense of what is God's best, um, even maybe the internal angst about if God is holding out on me with this life that I'm in now, um, is really kind of a parallel. You see a connection, I think, that you, you, you've drawn, even if just implicitly, from this story or the, you know, the impulse in the story to, you know, to leave to the temptation of, of Eve first, um, the suggestion that um, what you're experiencing is not God's, you know, best for you or you cannot be content um, having God in, in what you currently have. You, you must have this also because God is, is, hold, is holding out on you. And then, of course, when, when, you know, when you mentioned, um, you know, the idea of him kind of every day on, 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 you know, his father's land working and maybe having this image or even seeing a vision of, you know, the city, in in the distance, uh, reminding me, of course, of the you know the devil's temptation of Christ in the wilderness, showing him, you know, all the all the kingdoms of the world, all of this can be yours, kind of thing. Um, that's just really, you know, that's really insightful. All right, um, let's take a, a moment for a coffee break and hear a word from our hosts at Midwestern Seminary. Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Ministry degree program is your next step in training for local ministry. The Doctor of Ministry program at Midwestern Seminary is designed to equip and train leaders with a commitment to the local church. With multiple emphases available, including counseling, church revitalization, expository preaching, leadership, and missions, among others, your program provides the equipping you need in practical theology for direct church work and ministry leadership. And because all of our doctoral programs are modular, you don't have to leave your current ministry to pursue your degree. For more information, visit mbts.edu today. That's mbts.edu. Okay, we're back. We're speaking to Dr. Matt Carter, pastor at the Austin Stone and author of The Long Walk Home, Discovering the Fullness of Life in the Love of the Father. Um, Matt, you you mentioned um, that you deal with Ecclesiastes a little bit in the book, and it's something that I noticed um, as I was reading through um, and you talk about that that internal longing that God has placed eternity uh, in our hearts, um, the, you know, the, sort of the idea of the God-shaped whole, I suppose. Um, but my question is somewhat on the um, counterintuitive to that. Why do you think some people don't feel that, right? I mean, does everyone feel that, or are there some who they're just, you know, perfectly content to be lost, or they're lost and they don't know it, of course, but um, they're just perfectly happy? Why does that happen? Well, man, I'm not. I'm not going to walk down a Calvinistic road here on that question. But I, 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 think I, under, I think I understand what you're asking, and I, I'm convinced, um, biblically and just through my own experience, that everyone does. Okay. Um, I, I don't think there's some folks that God placed eternity in. I, I think it's clear from Romans that 
um, through creation, they're aware of the Lord. And, um, and I do think it's in everyone, and, and here's why. I, I, some of the examples that I use, um, you know, I'm friends with, uh, with a guy that's an NFL quarterback named Colt McCoy. And he was, uh, he was a student at the Austin Stone when he was here at the University of Texas. He, uh, when he finished University of Texas for one year, got beat him a year later, but he was actually the, the winningest quarterback in NCAA history for one year. He won more games during his four years at UT than any other quarterback in history. Hmm. And so here's this kid that's, that's literally the University of Texas in Austin. He is a legend. You know, every every little boy wanted to be Colt McCoy. Every grown man wanted to be around him and meet him. And I, I noticed something interesting when I was hanging out with him because he was kind of the very he was kind of the first, maybe really the only somewhat truly famous person. I'm, I'm people, you know, in New York don't know who Colt McCoy is, but but in Texas, this this guy's a big deal. Yeah. And we would be I mentored him his senior year, and we would be at. Uh, He'd be at dinner or something, and I would I would notice that people would walk by, they would see him, and and, and they would literally just stop in their tracks, <laughs> and they would stare at him, and then they they would start mumbling, and 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 then they would just do anything they could just to connect with him, to talk to him, to say something to him, and then and then as this person's fumbling around trying to interact with this guy. And then what you'd notice is that other people started noticing that, oh, my gosh, there's Colt McCoy, and a line would form. And I started asking myself the question, I'm like, why are people so attracted to fame? Like, why are people so attracted to greatness? What is, really, think about it for just a second. Why does that happen? Nobody walks by you and me, Jared, and stops in their tracks and goes, oh, my gosh, Jared Wilson, please let me have a piece of paper with your name on it. That actually might happen to you, honestly, but it doesn't happen to me. And, I wasn't going to say so, anything, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, so, but I'm, I started like, why yeah. do we react that way? What is this insatiable need to be around greatness? And I, I think it goes back to this Ecclesiastes 3.11 thing. I think in the garden we were created to be in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the greatest one in the world, in the history of the universe. There is no greater. Hmm. We were created to walk with him and talk with him, interact with him, encounter him. We've lost that in the garden. And so we we walk through life and we get these little micro glimpses of fame and greatness and that eternal hunger comes pouring out and we long to be in its presence. And so I, I could give other examples, but man, I am convinced it's in everyone. Yeah. Yeah, I I think I think you're right. And and the fact that some people I mean, I'm thinking of like relatives of mine who are lost as a goose and don't seem bothered by it at all. There doesn't seem to be any um, external, um, you know, a longing or appeal for uh, a search for truth or answers. They just seem perfectly content in their own life. And yet I think that is very often a mask or kind of a, a way of um, sort of a subterfuge for what's going on really inside. And uh, maybe you can kind of – But wouldn't you of, say this, yeah. Jared, wouldn't yeah. you say that, that – that those people do have this deep longing for happiness and fulfillment in life. Um, you know, I read a statistic yesterday. I, I don't remember who put it out. I read it on Twitter, but that uh, I believe it's of, of Gen Zers, 30% uh, 
today in America see the importance of church and Christianity and God, um, whereas 80% claim to have a, a deep desire for a fulfilling life. I think I, I saw that yesterday. But I, I, I do believe that, w- wouldn't you say that there is that longing in them for happiness and fulfillment? Yeah, I, I, I think so. But So I'm thinking of one person in particular um, who he he's – he may have that, except he thinks he's achieved it. So he's got money. Uh, yeah. He's got a happy family. He's a hard worker. He's got a lot moralistically. Uh, he, you know, he's a quote unquote good man. And, and, and I've been waiting, like, when is this going to crash? Because obviously, um, you know, there has to be an angst here. And so I think even if people are able to kind of, uh, you know, fill that void with things that they, that they think are working, that they really are in a collision course with the, you know, the void that's actually inside of them. I think you're right that everyone has that, and we're just able to kind of drug ourselves for a while. But sometimes it's a, as simple as getting older, and you know, the things aren't working like they used to, or you know, there's something that that happens. There's a brokenness that the Lord puts in in our path that at some point kind of wakes us up to the reality. Well, there's no question. Yeah. And- there's no question. And I, I was a student pastor in the Woodland, Texas for about seven years before I planted the Austin Stone. And that's a just a really, really wealthy part of Houston, Texas. And man, if I had one conversation, I had 200. Uh, you get you get these guys that are their executives, they were executives at Enron, they were executives at Exxon. And they were um, these guys that were making six, seven hundred thousand dollars a year had, a, had achieved everything they ever dreamed that they would ever desire to achieve. They wake up one day, they're 57 years old, and they're sitting at the desk or at the table across from me going, Matt, I am, I don't, what do I do next? Yeah. Right? Because I, I do, and I had that conversation so many times, I just think that you're exactly right, that, that we numb ourselves in the pursuit of these things, but then once we get them, we come to that realization, so to speak, which is exactly what the prodigal son did. The man, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. You say early on in the book that you think it's harder to be a Christian today than it has been in a long time. Not ever, but that in, you know, than it has been in a long time. Why do you think that? Well, it, maybe it's always been hard. We just weren't aware of it. But I think culturally there's there's things going on. What I'm hearing from from the younger folks in my congregation is, is it actually costs you something to be a, a Christian today. Yeah. It, it, it's it's becoming less and less socially acceptable. You know, I remember when I was growing up in the 80s, I remember my science teacher at my school presenting the the story of the biblical narrative of creation as a completely acceptable form of belief um, alongside of evolution. But yet for the student in the university today, for them to actually believe that God created the earth in a matter of days, is is antiquated at best and and laughable and and thought of as a you're crazy you believe a fairy tale yeah for a for a 20 year old um, junior at the University of Texas to um, say that they hold to sort of the biblical uh, definition of of marriage or or gender um, at best is thought of as antiquated at worst you're now bigoted and so what i'm seeing two things happen is one i'm seeing so many young people bend towards the cultural cultural norms so that they don't 
stand out or they're walking away mm-hmm. and they're saying, I'm, I'm just, it's not worth it. This, it costs me too much to give my life to Christ. In some ways, Jared, I think that might be a really good thing, yeah. you know, because the, the Christians that we're seeing in the younger generation are incredible. You know, the, the, the kids that, that are making the decision to say, I'm all in with Jesus, man, they are all in. And it's, it's incredible to see, but a lot of them are walking away. Um, you know, one of the things that I sort of stumbled across in my, in my research that was just heartbreaking to me, and I, might, I may be jumping into something you're passionate about here, but one of, the, one of the things that I read and studied of why folks are walking away and why they believe it's difficult to be a Christian is because, and I saw this over and over again, that they, people are saying, young people are saying, I never saw a vibrant, compelling example yeah. from an older person of what authentic Christianity looked like. Mm. <laughs> and, and, and here's, you know, here's why I think that's happening. I think that's been going on for a while, people going to church, and, but then living their life any, any way they want to live. But I think a lot of it rose that these kids grew up in a church growth environment. They, they grew up in a seeker-friendly environment where they were coming to church and they were being told five steps to better time management and five steps to live your best life now instead of being presented a real authentic picture of the gospel and Christianity and what it means to be a believer. And so what they're saying is, I never saw this lived out in a way that was compelling to me. Therefore, they think it's fake, and they're walking away. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, you know, one of the things I, I sort of discovered is, is uh, and, and, and again, this may have always been there, but more and more I'm hearing for, from folks um, that they do feel like they've messed up so bad that they just disqualified. Um, there's lots of stuff going on, man. Pornography. Um, it is, I, I've talked to guys that are in charge of mission sending organizations, and they're saying finding young men to go on the mission field is, is one of the most difficult things that they do because guys walk in, it's not if they've looked at pornography, it's how often. Yeah. And so many of them feel that they're disqualified. God could never use them. And and so I think the prevalence of that sort of thing is is the enemy is just using it to take an entire generation of folks and make them feel unworthy to be used by God and to walk with God. And so, man, that's some of the things I've, I've seen. But, um, but, man, there's a... It, it, it's getting more and more difficult, in my opinion, uh, to live it out in this world. Yeah. So um, if you could kind of sum up the the message of the book, say there's a guy or gal walking through the bookstore or the browsing Amazon or whatever it is, and uh, the the premise of the book just sounds really intriguing. Uh, they take it home, read it. What do you hope they come away with? What's kind of a, a nutshell uh, message that you hope every, you know every reader kind of takes home in their heart after reading this book? I, I hope that any person that's reading it, um, if if they are walking with the Lord, that they will walk away from that story, having gone on the journey with the prodigal son, that they are more convinced than ever before um, of the love of their Heavenly Father. You know, um, this may shock you, man, but that's actually been something that I've always um, struggled with, because I know my sin, I know where I failed, I know I've messed up, and I'm, I'm kind of that guy. It's like, hey, <laughs> God, you know what I've done, right? And so how, how, how can you love me? And I'll tell you a really quick story. Um, it, 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 when everything sort of changed was the moment that my son was born. 
and here's this little guy. He's my first son. I've been praying for him in the womb for nine months. And I come out. He, he comes into the world screaming, and I'm seeing him for the first time. And for any parents out there, you know what I'm saying. There's a depth of love, and there's a there's a depth of affection that you feel for this person that you just met that you've never felt in your life. You'd literally lay down your life for him in that moment, right? And I was holding him, just looking at him, just praying for him, and just feeling this overwhelming sense of love for him. And my father walked into the room. And I looked at my dad, looked at my son, looked at my dad, and I looked at my dad, and I said, Dad, I love him so much it hurts. And my dad said one of the coolest things he's ever said to me. He looked at me, he said, Matt, now you know how I feel about you. That's beautiful. And that blew me away. I was like, you mean you feel about me the way that I feel about him? And then later on I was thinking about it. I was like, man, if, if, if my dad really does love me that much, and I really do love my son that much, and we're all messed up and sinful, then my gosh, how much more does the Lord love us? And so for the believer, I hope they walk mm-hmm. away from this with a greater vision and belief and understanding of the love of their father to them than they ever have. For the person that's maybe thinking about taking the trip of the faraway land, I hope they can take the trip with the prodigal son so that they don't have to take them themselves. And for the person that has taken the trip, um, I too hope they discover and feel and experience the gospel um, maybe like they never have. That's great. Matt, thanks so much, brother, for coming on the podcast. And thanks for having me. Yeah. I, I, I enjoy talking to you. Yeah, it's been a blast. It's, it's good, man. Thank you. We've been speaking with Dr. Matt Carter, pastor at the Austin Stone Community Church in Austin, Texas, and author of the new book, The Long Walk Home, Discovering the Fullness of Life and the Love of the Father. It's available wherever quality books are sold. And as always, if you like the podcast, please share it with your friends, review us on iTunes. Every little bit helps. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, managing editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.